Hello, my name is Naranjan, the host of Master of Your Crafts podcast. Learning from leaders who are continuously inspired, passionate, and driven to align with their soul purpose, sharing their gifts to bring healing to others. The music is composed by Rebecca Everett. Today is episode number 37, and I'll be talking to Neil Ludovic, a producer, curator, environmentalist, artist, and entrepreneur focused on changing dominant systems in today's world. Currently the CEO and founder of Moon 31. His work has been covered internationally in the New York Times, Rolling Stones, CBS, among others. Named an emerging leader by the Association of Performing Arts Presenter, APAP, Neil received a congressional proclamation for his work with Harlem Arts Festival. He also helped launch Enlightened Snacks, a national consumer packaged goods company that redefined the ice cream aisle. Outside of Moon 31, he currently serves as the executive producer with the revived Big Band's next album, led by Lauren Hill's current musical director. He is a producer and a writer of a miniseries, Insomnia, curates ongoing jam sessions called The Astro Party, and hosts Fed Sessions, a dinner series where thought leaders and invitees make bread and break bread together. He also currently serves as an experienced board member at Selena and is a member of Oceanic Global's NYC Hub. Hello and welcome to Neil. How are you, Neil? I'm doing great. I'm super, super happy to be here. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm excited to have you on the podcast today to learn more about where you've come from, other interesting intentions that you have for the future and all the magic you've created so far. And then we'll delve into what the next little bit looks like. A little bit of who I am. So first generation American. Uh, my parents are immigrants. My dad is from uh, Russia. My mom is from Poland. Grew up in an ex- incredibly musical family. Everybody does uh, some kind of art form. My brother was a professional dancer. My mom is a pianist. My dad is a guitarist. Uh, my grandmother on his side, um, uh, was a professional pianist and actually her teacher was Shostakovich. Her brother was a conductor at the St. Petersburg Philharmonic. So a lot of arts in my family and uh, myself, I play a number of instruments. So saxophone, guitar, piano, I did singing and vocal percussion. But in school, uh, I went to Brandeis and studied uh, sociology and American studies. I was very interested in how music affected the brain too. And uh, shortly thereafter, Actually, during school, I was uh, for a brief stint uh, in a professional group called The Scarlet. They won a national competition with Spin Magazine. We played at South by Southwest. We had a record deal, toured around the country, did the whole uh, classic uh, music thing and had the MTV breakup. It was glorious and all of it. 
Yeah, actually, after school, I finished a year early and uh, moved actually to Korea. And I was teaching English and music in South Korea for a bit before doing some backpacking. And really, that was, I would say, where my career as a uh, administrator, as a producer, as a curator, as a you know, as an advocate for the arts really began. So I worked actually at an agency, uh, a jazz booking agency uh, with a number of jazz and hip hop artists, uh, Robert Glasper, and we worked with Most Def and Jose James. Uh, we got to do some super projects with Medeski, Martin and Wood and Randy Brecker and Bill Evans and some of the members of the Rolling Stones like Daryl the Munch Jones. Uh, so got to tour with them and work with legends like Pharaoh Sanders and really was at the same time, balancing a few jobs, worked at a design agency in a Jazz Lincoln Center. And uh, it was around that time that I started Harlem Arts Festival, which is a nonprofit based in Harlem that uh, really focused on providing opportunities for artists that had some kind of connection to a rapidly changing and shifting community. Harlem was gentrifying. Um, I was a product of that as someone that moved there. And we were interested in supporting artists of any discipline, uh, music, dance, theater, and visual arts uh, that were living there, working there, from there, frequently, and then and giving them a 360 degree support system, something that really doesn't, still to this day, exist. What was particularly special, I started with two other co-founders, um, Chelsea Goding and JJ, and their backgrounds were in um, theater and dance, respectively. We originally wanted to say, great, we have a background in curation and programming. We wanted to program this thing. And taking the time, more than three years, to really build a support system uh, deeply intertwined with the community, building a structure that was really focused around a curatorial and artistic advisory committee, one that actually did the selection instead of us. So this was a festival that was different in that it was application-based. We didn't choose the artists based off of who could draw the most people. We worked um, and got the, the support and buy-in of the idea by you know the programming directors or vice presidents or CEOs from the Apollo, from the Studio Museum, from the Museum for African Arts, Harlem Stage, a number of the major institutions there to ensure that we were presenting artists that were reflective and relevant to the community as it was shifting and changing. And so I did that for uh, seven years and the support system, we presented them at our festival. We did monthly workshops and concerts. We, for the dancers, we got them physical therapy and injury prevention consultation. We would meet with the artists and talk with them regularly about acquiring booking and management. A lot of these artists, which, I mean, some of them were internationally known, you know, and had, you know, been on The Voice and had been top five, or they wrote for Smokey Robinson and Nao. They didn't have websites. Uh, which is amazing. And so we built them websites and platforms on our website and almost became like a booking entity for them. And so, yeah, did that for seven years. At the same time, I also uh, started uh, with a colleague of mine, a national consumer packaged goods company for healthy food. Uh, it was a healthy ice cream company called Enlightened. In about three years, we were probably in about 10,000 stores around the country. It was one of the fastest growing companies in the food space and single-handedly changed the ice cream aisles. So Left that, though, to continue Harlem Arts Festival. And at the end of that, started my own company. I think uh, a, a big shift that's happened in the past few years is my goal during that time was really giving a platform uh, to showcase other people's work that often weren't uh, having an opportunity or didn't have an opportunity to talk about what's important to them in their own community. Um, and I think after seven years of that time doing that, I was really interested in... Uh, vocalizing some of the thoughts and the things that I was passionate about and honing my own 
artistic voice and thinking what is important to me, which can be sustainability, social justice, uh, gender equality, LGBT advocacy, uh, reducing gun violence, a number of different things, and thinking what is the impact that I can make on these issues. And so my company, Moon 31, is specifically focused on creating experiences, elevating conversations, and really thinking about storytelling as a means for conversation and bringing different people together, members of kind of the different power dynamics within those conversations um, to explore that and hopefully make some change and leave each one of those things, whether it's an experience, whether it's a TV show, whether um, it's a dinner session uh, with clear actionable items um, and resources for the participants to think, how can I move this conversation forward based off of what I've learned here today? Um, and so the core of the company, which, you know, this is kind of like my checklist, is it broadly raising awareness? Is it invoking some kind of systemic change? Or can I really see this change right now in front of me in such a way that I can say, yeah, this is making a difference. And that's kind of where the core of my company is that we've done a whole bunch of different projects um, now, um, probably the most known ones, we did the 50th year anniversary of Black Woodstock, which actually the film version, which we uh, contributed uh, some stuff to, was just directed by Questlove and won all the Sundance Awards. Uh, we did a mini series called Insomnia that we were producers for, which uh, really talked about mental health uh, and race and identity and sexuality, uh, specifically changing the stereotype of how South Asians are seen on television and shifting that narrative. Uh, we did a string and we've been working with Winter Jazz Fest of conversations all around mental health, specifically in the arts. What are some of the challenges that artists and musicians are facing being on the road and balancing um, healthy relationships and uh, keeping a daily practice in their own life and even just how it affects their daily psyche and how it can be seen in their work. So we did 15 or 16 conversations, which at that time was the largest uh, amount of conversations that Winter Jazz Fest had done, which is the largest jazz festival in New York. So I mean, those are a few different things uh, that kind of indicate some of the work that we've done. Yeah, that kind of leads me to where, where I am today and I'm constantly kind of pushing pushing the bar and thinking, you know, what's what's next that, can, that, uh, that I want to work on? Quite an achievement. Well done. And the vision and the passion that you have for the next phase of this is equally interesting and more thought-provoking from where you have been in all the people you have interacted with and what's instilled in the middle of your DNA as who you are from your upbringing and how it took you on that journey of music. But in the same token, connecting and collaborating with so many different genres so many different people from all walks of life and now putting you in this space of building, enhancing your own personality, if you will, of being able to really carve out that mastery of a craft of not only intention, but to make a difference because possibly the common thread through everything that you've done is intentionality to make a change through the product of sound and visual appeal and how that has really shaped you moving forward. Did you ever think or predict or strive intentionally for where you are today? 
I wish I could say that there was a, a grand plan. There definitely isn't. I'm very much of the universe tends to unfold as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think actually some of the greatest things have actually happened without a plan. Um, that's not to say that one should never plan. Um, and I think uh, there's a healthy dose of visioning and strategic planning and thinking, where do I want to be and how can I get there? Sure. I think within the last year, I, I, many people can agree that a healthy dose of pivoting uh, is required, um, especially in smaller businesses. Instead of saying, what projects do you have that I can work on or trying to really create projects, reversing the direction of the ask and instead of going, people asking for something, actually saying, what can I do for you? Mm-hmm. Um, that completely changed when I started leaving Harlem Arts Festival and coming back and thinking, what direction do I want to go to? And I think, I think there's a lot of individuals and, um, you know, just from my own experience, I, I, I shifted from a few different companies. So, but I will say leaving companies that you are either a founder or an integral part of, is one of the most difficult things I've ever, ever had to do personally and professionally. There's not that many resources out there, you know, in terms of thinking about how to do that and what is the timeline uh, that it should take. Yeah, it was really difficult. I mean, being, you know, very vulnerable and honest, my first company, the agency, I mean, I was practically in tears uh, leaving and I put every ounce of my energy and I loved working with those artists. Um, and I almost, by leaving, I've almost felt like I was letting them down. And with the other companies, with Enlightened, which I started with a very good friend, and even Harlem Arts Festival, when you really kind of did that, I mean, there was a, a, a big process and you know, something that I've been thinking about intentionally, where am I going and what am I doing? Uh, there was a point in time, actually, when I was traveling after leaving Harlem Arts Festival, started thinking like, wow, there really should be more resources. I mean, my system that helped me find the right time to leave was something I call, call a magic number system. I think a lot of people often leave under one of two circumstances, um, under the guise of, I'm getting too stressed and I hate this job and you know, I don't want to be here and I wish I could be doing something else. It's like a tea kettle that's just boiling and just waiting to boil more and more until yeah. boom, you kind of snap and Right. And then all of a sudden it's panic. It's what do I do and wh- where do I go? And I need to apply to another job and just, uh, you know, kind of do this. Mm-hmm. And there's not really that time for thought and uh, internalization. And I would say that many of those people, they don't feel like they can talk to their boss or their right. colleagues because it's, you know, either they left under bad circumstances or it's one of the other way where you kind of start in the mailroom and work all the way up, you know, to being the CEO you, you can't talk about it because like, what if somebody finds out that you're interested in leaving or mm-hmm. what does that do to the morale of the company? And it's great when there's the grandiose announcement, I'm moving on to this wonderful thing. I was a CEO of this company and now I'm moving on. You know, you just don't often hear about that backstory yeah. um, where it's, you know, that natural transition. And I mean, this is kind of where storytelling comes in, which hearing from other people's experience and a lot of, from my own friends, I had heard how they did it. And I've actually convinced a lot of friends to quit their jobs just from saying like, I have this strategy, which is figuring out how much money I need to live, like not skimping out, you know, uh, for insurance and my rent and going out and money and parties and dinner and, you know, whatever it might be, figuring out what that costs for a month, multiplying it by 12 Mm -hmm. and saving until I get to that amount. And then all of a sudden that choice to leave a company becomes much easier 
I'm making 40,000 or 60,000 or $80,000 um, a year, and that's my magic number. Mm-hmm. Then if I save half my paycheck every time, then two years and I'm there. But, and it helped me, I think, you know, when I actually left Harlem Arts Festival, I, I had a runway to not immediately need to run into another job mm-hmm. and run into a situation of thinking, I need this from you. Please, can you give this? Like in, in a panic-stricken way, it gave me an opportunity. I went backpacking for, you know, eight months in Australia and New Zealand. And it, and it was really coming back from that, that I thought, you know, I want to reverse this trajectory. I want to ask, what can I do for people? without an intention in mind, other than thinking my role in the past seven years was a lot of asking. The last mm-hmm. is saying, please give me things to support this nonprofit. Please give me money. And it's, it's very difficult soul-sucking work, mm-hmm. you know, to constantly be on other people's terms. Yes. And this was an opportunity that I was in a position where I could help people. And as a result of that, I mean, you know, I started learning a lot more and becoming a lot more involved in mental health. Um, talking to artists that were needing that kind of support. I was co-producing with other incredible artists that needed some support, um, tours in some of the biggest festivals in the world. Um, and never would I have thought that just by extending a hand and saying, hey, what, what can I help you with? Did I think that like some of the best opportunities uh, that I could have found would have come from that? In fact, I was pretty hardcore against it. And thinking mm-hmm. like, I'm not seeking these kind of opportunities. I just want to kind of, change the direction of the ask um, because there's a, a really good book, uh, Give and Take, especially in the last year that kind of talks a little bit about how giving and having this kind of notion of what unconditionally giving can do. And I've kind of been writing and in- internalizing that, but yeah, that's kind of helped. I think when it comes to planning, I think just making sure that that is a core part of who I am and what I'm doing in my company and making sure that's regularly happening. That's what's helped me get certainly provide some direction, even Mm -hmm. when there appears to not be one. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I think it's really interesting when you seek out opportunities and have had experiences that have shaped you in a form and a fashion. And then it almost gives you an opportunity to take back control of your life because we've been given this I want to say a mirage of experiences of life of you do ABC and you get X, Y, Z. But in the same token, that voice and that position is often led by family, mentors, colleagues and professors or institutional places, which have, I think, great intentions. But in the same token, it's can be very limiting for you probably very liberating considering you already come from the place of creative thinking and seeking opportunities from a very left field kind of environment and working the non-traditional job employment career and I say that because from my perspective and most of my circle many years ago it was very traditional. You go to school, get an education, and you move forward into some sort of title, a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, an engineer, or some profession where you're going to be handing over your power and your knowledge, living in the parameters for other people. It's, it's so funny that you say that 
because I was just talking about that with a friend of mine. So my parents, it's a little bit more of like the classic immigrant story. They came here, they had nothing. Music was not the avenue for support. And they've actually been working that steady, you know, until recently when they retired. But, you know, for 20 plus years, you know, they did what a lot of immigrants did during that time, either like Russian or Polish. They started working in computers. My mom worked at NBC, SBC or AT&T for more than 20 years. And my dad did the same thing for 25, 30 years. And there was definitely that notion of we are sacrificing. Both my parents worked. Uh, we're sacrificing this time and resources so you can have opportunities there is definitely, uh, and we've had that conversation, a generational difference where their expectation was we are making these sacrifices and we are working so that you can have the education and you can get the job with stability and insurance and benefits and resources so you can do that for your children. Foundation of that is we're giving you resources um, and all these things so you can have the freedom to choose. And the fundamental difference is the expectation of what you should choose is that you should continue doing that moving forward as opposed to what I've done, <laughs> which is made a choice of saying, thank you for this ability to choose. I'm going to do the complete opposite of what you expect. And I'm gonna work on building my own things and follow my passions because you have given me the freedom and the support to do that, which eternally grateful there's how else can you think about other than by doing your best um, but it's so interesting my friend I was talking with had the total opposite her parents were very much kind of the the hippie started their own company or a musician or I would say a non-traditional profession or one with less security and stability and as a result of that is now working and saying, I absolutely want the security. And she and her four brothers are working at the tops of major, enormous organizations that have all of the things that I was just talking about, stability and health insurance and a regular paycheck. I don't think either one of us was ever thinking, well, I, I, I absolutely want to be doing the exact opposite with that specific intention in mind. I think there is a core gut that, that we just kind of gravitated towards it. Uh, it's interesting. And I think, I mean, I'm very fortunate and privileged to have had that. Um, I have an older brother and he's the exact same way. He paved his own path mm. and started his own company and his own practices. And, you know, that mindset is, is one that kind of comes with based off of the upbringing that you have. And if you're yes. fortunate enough to have it. What do you believe about yourself now? And do you feel it defines who you are? not this New Year's, but the one prior, I did uh, my first, my only at this point, Vipassana, which is, uh, this one's actually called K-Pasana. It's a little joke with K-Pasana, the guy that does this practice. Uh, he's, he's Mexican, and, um, but he's been teaching this practice and um, actually sitting for, it must be 30, 40 years. He's an entrepreneur, um, mm -hmm. runs, uh, you know, at least he's, he's done two companies and runs a huge health company, but his is a com Vipassana combined with yin yoga and Wim Hof. Oh. Um, it was a very powerful sit in that a lot of things kind of opened up. But uh, what, what I'm thinking of here is he has this uh, thing in the morning. And actually for most of the sits afterwards, he reminded that at, at the end of each one, 
talk about your affirmations. Mm-hmm. Um, remind yourself silently whether that you're filled with love and kindness. And then I've kind of taken it a step further of thinking, you know, what do I believe about myself? And because that can change. Um, I think the circumstances and a lot of the challenges can sometimes pull you in a different direction or make you falter a little bit. That was the first time. And after reading a book, which is one of my favorites that I talk about a whole bunch, probably too much, but Think and Grow Rich, uh, where they really mentioned that if you're talking about what you believe in yourself, you should write it down, say it out loud every morning. Unless you put it into the ecosystem and the atmosphere, um, it, it just won't come to fruition and you need to kind of speak your truth. I'm saying that because I'm still often reminding myself of what I believe about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've got something valid to say. I think this is actually a big takeaway from my own um, sit, which is reminding myself and that I believe that I have a valid experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think especially talking about my upbringing, which yes, my parents kind of came and they really built the stuff, but I also had a lot of privilege and I'm a white man walking in this world and I had resources and an education. And often I've questioned, do I have the, you know, when a lot of other people, their parents were working two jobs and they had three kids or even now they're kind of coming without, they don't have that many resources or they're coming across, you know, a lot of prejudice and racism or the issues are endless. It begs into question, is my suffering or is what I feel valid compared to that? You know, I should be talking about if, if there's some other people that need so much more help. What I had to remind myself is that my experience has validity and you just can't compare suffering. Um, you know, everyone's experience is valid and there's something to learn from it and sharing it is step one of, you know, hopefully impacting other people. So the first belief that I have is that I have a valid experience. The second one is understanding that that is a, a foundation of connecting with anyone. Um, and I, I do believe that connecting with people and sharing stories is what's going to make impact. So, yeah, I would say those are kind of the two two things that sit with me at the moment. Do you think that that is your calling is to share that with others so they can observe it and recognize it and be somewhat settled with what it looks like in their life and for future generations to come to center with it, if you will. Right now, actually, um, on a personal level, what I just feel most excited about and I kind of just can't stop thinking about, and I guess kind of my calling is just visual storytelling and trying to find ways to bring my perspective and my lens and what I see in stories that are just concocted in my head or real life experiences to a screen for impact. I don't think there's anything that could ever, and I think that's, we're learning it now, that can replace the experience of sitting in a room with somebody else, right? That that experience of live and being in a constant show and the energy is irreplaceable. However, it's limiting, right? You can have a hundred people, 5,000 people, maybe you've got the Super Bowl and you've got half a million or, you know, whatever the capacity of that space is, but that's it. You know, you have that event and no video capturing of that is going to adequately represent what the takeaway from that is. You can do your best. And there's some great companies I've worked actually hybrid music. They're buddies of mine. They really capture the energy of live performance in a unique way. So it's limited to that, that amount of people, but film, 
you can and TV, you, you're making this thing to be passed along digitally and give people a lens into an experience that can be internalized and digested a billion times, right? There's no end to the amount of times that something can be screened and looked at. I mean, you look at documentaries like what Alex Honnold did with Free Solo and people climbing Everest or sharing their experience. And you're so entrenched into that viewpoint because of how these filmmakers and videographers have seen that perspective. You forget there's an entire camera crew around them, you know, that's shaping what you vision. And I think right now my calling, I'm, you know, there's a few projects I'm working on, you know, and kind of in even just delving into insomnia is like finding that perspective that can give people an understanding of what, what people have experienced. And I think that can shape opinions. Even just being on the road with musicians as a musician myself, that experience unbelievably hasn't been told. And I'm working on a film right now, which is, it's a true story about artists. So the biggest artists of the eighties in Brazil and where everything you could possibly fathom goes wrong. There's no stability. They're dealing with drugs. They're dealing with relationship issues. They're dealing with every chaotic um, unexpected thing that the universe has to throw at them. And all the while they're expected to make do. Um, mm. And so for me, like I have a, a vision, an idea in my head of how I want this to look and what I want it to be. Um, and so that kind of feels like my calling. I enjoy this art of storytelling speaking, but everything I kind of look at now, I, I, I see scenes, I see films. Mm-hmm. Um, and even even the, the Questlove documentary, uh, the Summer of Soul, I mean, seeing footage that had never been uh, brought to life after 50 years, I mean, what that can tell about activism and brotherhood and empowerment and how relatable that is today, mm-hmm. um, you know, and what's happening. I mean, that's a specific lens that he brought to life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of, you know, and, and, and choosing the right people that are going to communicate that on screen and tell that story um, and kind of curate that picture, I'm, I'm obsessed with it. That's pretty exciting. That's a yeah. pretty exciting space to be in. Do you think the pandemic has crystallized this perspective you take to storytell on a whole different level? Because even though your, I want to say intention, your drive for storytelling is by sheer vibration of physical beings being together ultimately, right? It's been in that ether, it's been in that physical space. So has the pandemic emphasized the need for that more because of the separation? I absolutely think so. I think we're in a place that we're craving content digitally um, because there's limitations. And I think all of a sudden the quality of that content being required to massively go up, right? You, there's so much of a flood of it. I think that's kind of putting into question um, and challenging us. Um, every, every maker and doer and manifester and producer and curator in what we're experiencing and what, what, is, what does it look like? The pandemic has certainly crystallized this. Um, one of my reminders and mantras that crisis fosters innovation. This is the time that we're going to be seeing the most new ideas or probably in the next five years in all the spaces that have changed. I mean, New York City, an entire population of artists have moved out making room for new people um, to make in physical spaces. Um, And all the while, all those artists, they are 
tinkering and tweaking with all of the different tools and how lucky are we that COVID is happening at a time where digital communication exists, right? We're not communicating by faxes unless you're like a credit card company, Um, you know, and saying what's up and getting response five days later. It's definitely forced me to think, what am I doing? Why am I doing it? And how am I doing it? This entire year has been a time of content creation, thinking and, and making space to continue to create. So I have a writing group that meets three times a week um, on Clubhouse. I'm doing kind of like workshopping, poetry, really any kind of writing, but we do that um, t- uh, twice a month, kind of setting up systems that can help me continue to kind of crystallize specific visions, but not for now, because I think there's so much noise, but whatever I do has to be quality. It has to be worth someone else's time because people's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. It went from 30 seconds to 15 to 10. And now you have five seconds, you know, 15 seconds on TikTok if you're lucky. Every word counts, every second, every facial expression, getting more comfortable with that requires some experimentation. So this, this has been my time for that. You know, Absolutely. and also finding my tribe that I'm willing to experiment with. Mm-hmm. Which, again, I think with the digital age being so at our fingertips, literally, and having the world at your oyster from a click of a button, I would imagine that would be relatively simple and relatively easy for you to do is build that tribe and build that connection with other people to intentionally create these spaces and create these experiences it's always trial and error uh close friends have kind of maintained uh, and stayed true through this there's a lot of people that were hit really hard a good friend of mine uh, melissa zook actually she was telling me about the importance of often defining your the type of relationship that you're interested in having with people right uh, people often think that it's relationships are a and b right there's you and there's me and that's it and you have your needs and i have my needs but what if you thought about the relationship as having needs within itself right a c so there's an a b and c one predicated on growth or one being on stability or one on happiness on growth might mean that you come back and say hey i'm struggling with this and i give you some tough love right because you're interested in growing and saying hey you're not doing this right you're not thinking about this properly you're you know, there's a lot of X, Y, and Z, and, and I'm kind of pushing back. You might not be very happy with that, but if we both agree that that's the kind of support that we're looking for, that's different than if one on stability or happiness. Happiness might be like, great, everything's okay, and you are doing things right, and here's a shoulder to cry on, right, as things are tough. Or stability might be like, hey, you've got this problem. I'm not just going to su- support that with my words. Here's like a bunch of cash. It comes down to also like the love language conversation too. So, and those dynamics shift. It, you might say, hey, we have a growth relationship now, but there might be things in your life, especially now as people are facing people getting sick and you know losing loved ones, they might not be in a place to handle that kind of growth mentality. They might be seeking that shift either vocally and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I need to change the scope of this or where we are, or they might not say anything at all and you might just have to take the hint. Um, and so that's, that's been a little bit in, in my circle, kind of shifting and seeing who has been in this ecosystem, this world, this universe, um, that's been ready for that. And I found some fantastic people, a good friend of mine that's in, in that circle for me, uh, Guy Rute, who's also a, practically like a mentor and uh, love what he's doing. He said, 
Stop trying to chase people. Just make some office hours. Make your time, put your work in and see who comes when you open that space up because they, those people that come, they had enough drive to find you, right? And be seeking that kind of space so they can be accountable to themselves. And now you've got two people that have the ability, you know, that kind of bare minimum of accountability to themselves. And then you can support one another in, in a continuing way um, and see what that further, uh, further support can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, I think, just emphasizes your point of how we have become more digitally consumed, but also impatient because that time span of 30 seconds is very much that five, five second mark, right? And even if it's an intentional of building your tribe and connecting with those like-minded people, I think it's the same thing. So spinning off a little bit into what you talked about earlier about saying those affirmations about yourself and vibrating those words and intentions out there and following the path that you have in meeting all these wonderful people and asking for opportunities, but also presenting opportunities. I truly feel being led from a, an intentional place, but also an intuitive place. So when you create and open that space up, which is what I'm hearing loud and clear in what you're saying, it's the intuitive element of not overthinking it, but just feeling it and trusting it. And it's that five seconds that you know. Um, there's something I actually wrote about on my blog, but I've got like an analogy uh, that, that sort of sits, sits in this conversation quite well. Um, there's a, a dinner series called The Influencer's Dinner that this guy John Levy organizes. And he, uh, I mean, some incredible folks, uh, it's like Bill Nye, the science guy and Questlove and, um, you know, Nora Jones and the vice president, like all these people have gone to this thing. Um, the starting place you get paired up um, in sets of, uh, you know, just one-on-one. You're not allowed to know anything about the other person other than their first name. And you actually are not allowed to talk about work. And afterwards they get together around a table and he guides a conversation from what I'm told. And at the end of it, everyone has to guess what they do. Um, it's cool, but he gets some really incredible people to come to these things. And he's not doing anything particularly wild, but when there was an interview that said, how, how do you do this? How do you get all these incredible people? They said, part of it is you have to give unconditionally. You have to be genuine in your intention in terms of what you put out there. And then great people will come. And the way that I equate it, my analogy is like giving out pie, right? Everybody loves pie. Um, at some point, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to come and just shove and pie in their face, like sweet free pie, yum 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 yum, right? Uh, there's all, also going to be a, a, a number of people that are going to say, wait a second, why are you giving out this pie? Mm-hmm. Are you like, can I help? I'd love to make like I've got some cookies. Let's make a dessert platter, or maybe I can help prepare this for you. Um, this intention of who you want to surround yourself by and is really comes down to this notion of giving out free pie and discerning who are the people that are just in it for the free pie versus who are the ones that are interested in baking with you. And if you can find those people and work on discerning, right, there's going to be certainly a room for error and there's that absolutely happens. But the important thing is if you're 
true to it and a little bit discerning and and know kind of your limits of giving, you're going to end up potentially with a great group of bakers and people that want to make and create uh, with you. And that's kind of, you know, that's what I'm looking for. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, kind of comes with with a lot of, of this um, yeah. giving and putting energy out there and seeing what comes and finding the people that are worth putting that time into because a lot of great things can come from there. Absolutely. Yes. Feeling the energy in the space in between, because sometimes we intuitively know that, but we are so focused in action and doing, I'm sure you can relate, of here's a checklist, now we're digital, we have all this access, but we have so little time, so there's all this stuff to do. We stay in the head and we forget to breathe. So that takes a whole different a whole different element of a conversation, I think. Mm-hmm. With everything that you have done, storytelling, collaboration, truly being in a space of giving, of being of service, what does the next piece look like for you? I think on a practical level, it's what I you know, was talking a little bit about earlier, which is really creating spaces where visual storytelling is kind of at the crux of it. I'm actually with a few fantastic people. I met uh, Vishal Reddy. He's the guy that's uh, leading it. Um, And there's two other people, uh, Milan and Dipali, that are um, part of that company. We're starting Snarky Elephant Productions, which is the umbrella organization that's housing Insomnia. And the other, we have more than 20 projects in development. And um, we're talking to some great organizations, but the, and it's called Snarky Elephant because we say we're addressing the elephant in the room. That's the, the, nice. the quick and easy version, but really it's about um, exploring and supporting underrepresented um, creators uh, and giving them a platform to, to create work that's about and by them where they are the storytellers. So I think on a practical level, like that kind of a company and you know what Moon 31 is doing Mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in creating these kinds of stories and um, where they're saying like my money where my mouth is and investing in both myself and others um, mm-hmm. in that way. My next five years is going to be pretty heavy in, in making these kinds of, you know, kind of relating what my last decade of experience in the arts and also just being an artist in my perspective, thinking, you know, how can I put that on screen and how can I put that in a place? So I think that's on a practical level what is next for me. You know, I'm just looking to partner and, and meet other creators in that way. I think philosophically, you know, I've kind of carved out the space to be a little bit of a digital nomad, to be bi-coastal. I have a, a, a promise that I make to myself every year I travel at least once nationally and once internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, working on staying true to that. I often say that I walk to the beat of my own drum. I'm interested to keep that rhythm going. Um, and be doing a lot more walking around the world to a Mm -hmm. lot more rhythms um, because part of this perspective that I'm interested in sharing is being perhaps the cliche and this is where the name for the company Global Citizen came from but I'm interested in being a global citizen and continuing to open up my eyes work with individuals that are not just in Hollywood or in New York or in LA Mm -hmm. or in America but learn another language, you know? And so just, I think philosophically keeping that door open and actually, you know, it's not just about having one foot in that door, but it's actually putting the majority of my body in there Mm -hmm. and keeping one foot 
in the past, right? Like the curatorial mm -hmm. experiences that we create have to be a little bit of the past, a little bit of the present and a little bit of the yeah. future. Uh, we're doing something great for um, the Earth Day Initiative, which is coming out, Amir Jandali, but he did this thing where he created this, this museum that you could walk to um, and enter where it actually, he asked visitors to imagine themselves 50 years in the future. Mm -hmm. and 50 years in the future, walking into this museum, looking at it as if it was the past and looking at these relics of sustainability mm -hmm. as antiquated and ridiculous. And like the things that he had on display, which was just comical, mm -hmm. was a trash can. Mm -hmm. And thinking a New York City trash can was, wow, in 2020, 2019, this is how they disposed of things. Right. right. A single use plastic bottle. Wow. They actually, can you believe that they use those things when we've got X, Y, and Z now in, in 2070. Mm -hmm. And then he said, even he'd set up a, a little booth even further, which was such a genius idea of a chance for those people in the quote unquote future to leave memories of themselves. Right. These are people, right. This is me when I'm 80 years old saying, I remember in 2020 what it was like to use a single use, but oh my God, can you? So his company is called Future Meets Present, but envisioning ourselves and putting ourselves in the future. So that's what our actual mindset should be. Mm -hmm. um, and so we're doing a conversation actually on Earth Day on the 19th of April. So I'm kind of putting together a panel that's asking some people like, what are you doing? You know, what is the current place that you have today? in your industry, in your sector, and what are you doing to take us into the future? Right. And so that question is very resonant for me because I'm constantly thinking like every conversation, every panel and whatever, but there needs to be an action item that takes us into the next step. Philosophically, I want to make sure that I'm doing that and yes. kind of, you know, got one foot in the past, but the majority of myself is in the future. Interesting times, Neil. My goodness. Yes, it is. You have a lot on your plate but it looks like and it sounds like it fills you and it thrives you to the next space. It's a great plate. I'm happy to be at the table. Right? I am so grateful for you to be able to take time out and share all your nuggets of wisdom and experiences that you have had from your Vipassana experience to who you are and all the amazing people you've had connections with, be it high profile or in between, how they have really shaped you in who you are today and how that in turn is going to propel moving forward is a beautiful gift. So thank you so much for sharing that with me today. So thanks again for having me. I'm Naranjan, and you've been listening to Master of Your Crafts podcast. Please subscribe, rate, and review, and join me next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.